Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Hey everyone, welcome back to Body Justice. Hope everyone's having a lovely week, a lovely day, a lovely hour of your day. Um, And I'm just sending you all so much compassion. This is a really hard time of year for so many people with the holidays. We still have COVID going on and it's ramping up in a lot of places again. So just sending you all so much compassion um, and know that I'm right there with you. Today, we're going to talk to an amazing guest, Dr. Jenny Wang Hall. She is a colleague of mine. She's actually here in San Diego with me, which is super exciting. She's a psychologist in private practice who's been treating eating disorders for over 10 years. Her practice centers community and alliance building as a key component of healing. Her unique approach to therapy focuses on centering social justice issues that are pertinent to clients experience their, their own liberation from eating disorders and other forms of oppression like capitalism, which is what we're going to talk about today is the intersection of capitalism and eating disorders. So as you can tell from her bio, her and I have a really similar style and approach. We really center systems of oppression and social justice in our work, um, which is amazing. I was so excited to find her and, you know, we connected on Instagram and so grateful grateful for that. So before we get into the interview, I want to remind you guys, you can access my online eating disorder recovery course via the link in my bio. I'll also put it in the show notes. This is a self-paced online course, two and a half hours of video content, as well as PDFs to help you fast track your recovery. It's not a, um, it's not a replacement for therapy. However, it's a really helpful adjunct to just give you tons of skills to help move you along in your recovery. from Everything from coping with emotions to building motivation, body image healing, social justice and how that plays into our recovery. Tons of different topics. That's just very few of them. Um, But I really hope you guys go check it out. Um, You can take it at any time. So it's definitely there. I also have a new course out, which is for eating disorder providers. And it's about what we need to know as eating disorder providers when we work with someone who has both an eating disorder and OCD. Sometimes when we don't know about OCD recovery and we're just treating the eating disorder, we can actually make the OCD worse. And I specialize in both of these issues, so I created a course specifically for eating disorder providers and what they need to be aware of. So enough of my spiel. I would love if you left me a review on Apple. There'll also be a link to that in the show notes. And let's talk to Jenny. So Jenny, can you tell listeners a little bit about you, how you identify and what you're passionate about? Yes. So um, I'm Jenny. I'm a psychologist in private practice. Um, 
I absolutely love treating eating disorders from a social justice liberation oriented lens. Um, I'm really excited and passionate about creating anti-carceral relationships where clients get to take the lead. Um, so that's the work that I'm really passionate about. Um, I am a cisgender, queer, multiracial, um, non-disabled woman living on Kumeyaay land in San Diego. Um, so, you know, walking into the therapy space, really recognizing these identities that I hold a lot of privilege in and really trying to integrate those intersectional identities that I hold in the therapy space with what the, the client is showing up with in terms of their identity. So that's another component of that liberation oriented um, treatment. So yeah, I love private practice. You know, I love um, getting to do this work, eating disorders, you know, our um, folks with eating disorders have such big hearts, I feel like, and really, um, just so much need the support and care and like guidance. So I really, really love doing this work. Yes, absolutely. I was so happy when we connected on Instagram to find yeah. another um, eating disorder therapist that focuses on social justice is such an integral mm -hmm. part of their practice. Like, mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's kind of hard to find and it shouldn't be, but to yeah. see that we're both in San Diego too. So I know, so <laughs> I know it's so awesome. Yeah. That social justice component should be integrated for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just not necessarily trained into clinicians like yeah. from grad school and stuff. So a lot of the learning that we do comes from our own personhoods, our own research and, um, you know, participation in different, um, kind of cultural circles. So mm -hmm. I agree it should be in everyone's treatment, but Unfortunately, it's not. I know. Yes. I mean, I, I feel like if you want to be trauma informed, you you have to be social justice informed. Like the two Absolutely. Not exist without each other. <laughs> no, I mean, the extent to which people experience harm and trauma based on these, you know, forces of societal oppression, like we have to integrate that into mm -hmm. our lens in order to really be able to understand someone's lived experience and meet them there. Um, so I totally agree being trauma-informed means being justice-informed. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about liberation psych and, and how you use it in the recovery space with your clients? Yeah, so liberation-oriented eating disorder treatment is so exciting and so important. Essentially liberation, you know, definitionally is freedom from imprisonment and oppression. And so the way I make sense of that in eating disorder treatment is that um, therapy facilitates a process of, you know, combating sort of um, forcefully rejecting the oppression of the eating disorder. Um, and then also the other component of liberation is fostering that in the therapeutic relationship. So, you know, liberation from the eating disorder really means being able to choose values aligned behaviors and ways of living. Um, so someone is not restricted, someone is not shut down and kept small, you know, emotionally by the experience of having an eating disorder. So mm -hmm. liberation is such a beautiful and powerful experience that, you know, in the therapeutic relationship and the process of treating eating disorders happens so slowly over time. Yes. Um, and so I think that liberation is like a slow burn, mm -hmm. um, you know, as it is in any social kind of change movement. Um, so liberation is this incredible process of freedom from the eating disorder. And then, you know, thinking about, um, sort of 
like liberation in the context of the therapeutic relationship, I really focus on creating anti-carceral um, dynamics in treatment because I think, unfortunately, what happens often is that clinicians are very anxious and see the acuity of eating disorders and so much want to kind of rush someone yeah. um, to a place of recovery and liberation and anti-carcerality in the course of treatment means the clinician following the lead of the client mm -hmm. and really empowering that client to choose their own goals, um, their own sort of treatment targets, instead of coming in and assuming that they want X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, so I see liberation kind of on those two levels. And I find it crucial to integrate. I think if we don't take this liberation lens, um, there can be this sort of oppressive nature of this is how you're going to get out of your eating disorder. You know, mm -hmm. this is the exact path that you're going to take. And this is what works for everyone. And, yeah. you know, we know, obviously that's just not the way that eating disorder treatment works. And mm -hmm. so for us as therapists, really focusing on individualized approaches that are led by the client's wisdom, mm -hmm. the clinicians coming in, in a place of humility, I think is really what can kind of foster and unlock liberation. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I know we've chatted about that before, but I, I think it's so important, you know, mm -hmm. I love that. And I learned so much from your, your Instagram posts about that, because it's, I often do think of, you know, the liberation in the sense of helping clients find freedom from the eating disorder, yeah. you know, because I personally, I don't think I've ever felt so free than when I first recovered, right. It's mm -hmm. like, you come out of this cage you've been trapped in, yeah. um, which is a beautiful, amazing journey and, and very hard. Um, and, but then looking at the bigger systems and how that could show up, like mm -hmm. in the therapeutic relationship, I think is so interesting to think about because even the way a lot of us are trained as eating disorder therapists, there's a focus on, you know, weight restoration and, mm -hmm. um, you know, really making sure the client is medically stable. And mm -hmm. of course we have to like balance both of those. Right. So I'm yeah. really, really curious to hear, like, how do you let's say you're working with a client who is medically unsafe, you know, mm -hmm. they're quote unquote underweight, BMI mm -hmm. is bullshit, separate conversation. Right. <laughs> right. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. So I think it is, um, I think it's really tricky and really anxiety provoking for a lot of clinicians to hold folks in their practice who, you know, really are sort of physically at risk. Mm -hmm. um, but what I think liberation really looks like and sort of an anti-carceral approach is guiding clients to create behavioral change in the goals of their health in the sequence that they feel is important. Um, so, you know, if we come into the therapy space and say, I care about you and I very, very much want to help you um, be safe. I want to help you gain safety. Most folks want that for themselves, yes. but they aren't necessarily ready to eat a full meal plan and discontinue exercise. So like, let's think about choosing a goal um, that is in line with your health kind of progress over time um, and making sure that like the rest of the team members are supervising that, you know, mm -hmm. like I think that clinicians, um, I think that therapists sometimes have this sense of like over responsibility mm -hmm. when like it's out of our scope yeah. to monitor like medical complications and physical risks. I mean, it is our responsibility to collaborate with other team members um, 
and ultimately like if other team members are saying, okay, this is the direction we need to be moving in. Awesome. I can try to support the client in doing that, but mm-hmm. it's not my role to assign physical goals. Right. Um, because that, that isn't something I have expertise in, you mm-hmm. know? Agreed. Yeah. And you know, it's so, it's so true that when you, when you, I'm thinking of, you know, my clients who are, you know, still build, building motivation to reach certain mm-hmm. goals, if you really get down to their values and what they want for their life, their goals are usually the same as kind of mm-hmm. what, you know, the team sees as what needs to happen. It's just yeah. the pace is going to be different. Um, mm-hmm. The barriers to getting there are going to be different for every client. Right. Um, but yeah, really kind of meeting them where they are and reminding them, you know, what they really want because yeah. they clients don't come to therapy, not wanting help. Like that's why they come. (laughs) So, right. Right. Yeah. They come because they want the help. And, you know, ultimately the biggest, you know, so much research has been done showing that the biggest predictor of change is motivation. And so if I say you're going to change in X, Y, and Z way, but they don't have motivation for that, it's not actually going to happen. So it's really not a good use of our time. Mm -hmm. Um, So really helping them look at that values component, um, unlocking liberation in that way is predictive of change. You know, that's where true change can occur. Right. Absolutely. And like just the quality of the therapeutic relationship, like, right. No, no one is going to trust a provider that they don't that they don't feel comfortable with, that they can't be themselves right. with, that they don't feel mm-hmm. safe with. So yeah, it's such a, a science and an art all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot that goes into it. For sure. So I know we want to talk about capitalism and how it impacts our mental health and eating disorders. Yeah. So what would you say, you know, are some of the main ways that capitalism impacts our mental health? Yeah. So capitalism, you know, is this like financial and cultural system of dominance in which people are singularly responsible for their own, you know, financial outcomes, but also physical outcomes and emotional health sort of markers. And so capitalism imposes this sense of intense responsibility on an individual. Um, And in capitalism, there are winners and there are losers. And the winners owe nothing to the losers and the losers are, you know, identified as singularly responsible for their outcomes. Um, So in this system, basically individuals are sort of inculcated with this mindset of strive and thrive in every area of life. Like you must be going, producing, consuming. That's the way the system works. Um, And when it comes to people's mental health, kind of how that plays out is, you know, when you're pushing yourself in all these domains of life and systemically you're being told, I mean, very few people in the world actually achieve capitalistic success. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you don't fall into this very, very small percentage of folks who reach that level of, you know, success, then you're told that it's your fault. You need to be working harder. You're not good enough. You're not trying hard enough. Um, So that, creates this anxiety. It creates depression and hopelessness. Um, and then we see those experiences really, you know, transferring onto the experiences of eating disorders, mm-hmm. you know, folks having really significant struggles with food and body. Um, so capitalism isn't this oppressive structure that like 
you know, really dominates our society systemically in so many different ways, but it, it gets translated into the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And I mean, the other thing I think about with capitalism and mental health is that like capitalism is very individualistic. It's very much focused on your responsibility, your outcomes, and humans are meant to live in connection. Humans are meant to live in community and community power. And so when you live in isolation under the dominant power of capitalism, again, it contributes to that sense of, of anxiety and depression and internalization of, you know, harmful experiences that occur in the world due to all these various forces. Mm -hmm. Um, So it shows up in so many different ways, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. It really creates this feeling of never good enough. It really Mm -hmm. creates a lot of, and exacerbates perfectionism, you know, and I think of our folks with eating disorders, that's a really Mm -hmm. common trait is anxiety and perfectionism. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we don't often stop to think about, well, how is, how is this system impacting our clients with eating disorders? Right. How would you, what are some of the biggest ways you see capitalism impacting eating disorders specifically? Yeah. So, you know, the, the beauty and diet industry, you know, profits about $80 billion a year. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is this massive kind of conglomerate of, of harm and violence to, to all people, but, you know, very pointedly to women. Um, And basically, you know, this, this sort of culture of, um, dieting, perfecting your appearance, all of these different things, like there's no way to escape negative self-image and body image distress coming from that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, we know that exposure to the thin ideal is one of the biggest predictors of body image, distress, disordered eating, you know, negative relationships with movement. So we see these trajectories towards an eating disorder coming from this, you know, like very disgusting beauty industry. Um, and that's all driven by profits, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these companies really, um, benefit so much on the insecurities and the self-doubt and shame, truly shame, um, of all peoples. But like I said, specifically with women. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's that component of, of, you know, this financial sort of prosperity. And then there's also collusion between capitalism and the eating disorder and kind of how that looks is, you know, if the capitalistic beliefs are I'm not doing enough. I need to try harder. I need to push myself. That willpower, discipline, exactly all of those things that gets translated onto the body. And the eating disorder then says, you need to push yourself more. Mm -hmm. You need to restrict more today. You need to engage in these behaviors. If you just try harder. Yeah. If you just try harder. harder. Yeah, exactly. And like in capitalism with the eating disorder, there is this false promise, this, um, sort of mythical ideal that if you do enough, you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Um, if you do enough, then you'll reach ultimate satisfaction in life. And what we know under the structure of capitalism and the living, you know, experiences of having an eating disorder, that doesn't happen. Um, Mm -hmm. there is never a point of satisfaction. And so that's why we have to help clients disentangle from capitalism and that, you know, internalized mindset 
in order to help them disentangle from the eating disorder thoughts and beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's this collusion, there's this profit sort of system. Um, they're, they're so hard to extricate, you know, in, in eating disorder treatment. Mm -hmm. And I love talking about this with clients because I think, you know, there tends, obviously there's so much shame wrapped up in having an eating disorder, but mm -hmm. I think when you talk with clients about all these systems that set them up to feel this way towards their body, right. it takes the blame off of the individual. And unfortunately right. in like standardized eating disorder treatment, there is a lot of blame and shame on the individual. Yes. But when you have these conversations with clients and you can see their like their mind like expanding, like, oh, maybe mm. it isn't my fault. Like, yeah. sure, I was born with this genetic wiring, but I don't live in an right. environment that was created for me to thrive with that. Like that insecurity right. is 100% exploded with all these systems, especially capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that is so important for us as clinicians to recognize and really bring into the therapeutic space that eating disorders are not individual illnesses. Mm -hmm. You know, a person is not independently responsible for their experience of distress and struggle. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like the biopsychiatric model of eating disorders and sort of this genetic reductionism that um, really seems to be sort of sweeping through the field. And, you know, in grad school, we talk about the diathesis stress model that you might have a certain genetic load, but your environment triggers that, mm -hmm. or you might have a very low, you know, genetic load for something. And then the environmental factors are overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, so either way, we can't deny the influence of the environment and absolutely bringing in a sense of community of systems of cultural awareness. I think that in itself alleviates so much shame mm -hmm. that in itself lets someone know, like, this is not actually my fault. I didn't do anything to deserve this happening to me. No. Um, because I think a lot of folks with eating disorders often feel like, like I'm cursed. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that I am responsible for, you know, and unfortunately they do sometimes receive those messages yes. um, from, you know, family and friends or from treatment providers that like, well, I know this is a really hard task, but like you can do it. You can try harder mm -hmm. without necessarily looking at like external forces of support. Like, does that person have access to housing, food, safety, um, you know, uh, a healthy support system? Do they have the internal resources of, you know, safe attachment, emotional resilience, like mm -hmm. all of these kind of factors that we forget about when we just try to push for behavioral change? Mm -hmm. um, without working at these systemic factors, um, and trying to build up community resources, you know, for, for our individual clients. And then also, I feel like you and I both work so hard to impact like society, yeah. um, through the work that we do and really offer kind of a different perspective into treatment. And so like bringing that into our work, I feel like is so crucial for us to be actually doing justice for the people we're trying to help, you know? Agreed. Yes. I was just listening. It's funny that you mentioned the brain-based stuff because I was just listening to some new research about, you know, um, eating disorders as brain-based illnesses. And it's really fascinating, but the whole time I was listening, I was like, this is not the only thing though, you know? And like, it's not just someone's traits and their like genetic 
predisposition right. and the way their brain is wired, like a hundred percent it's a part, but like, we can't ignore like the society we live in. Right. Absolutely. And like I did my postdoc, um, you know, in a place that did both clinical work and research. And so a lot of the clinical work was informed by like, let's talk about these brain components. Let's talk about your genetic wiring, which is like, definitely like you're saying, I feel like a component and can be, um, helpful for someone to acknowledge this is again, this is not my fault. And I think it still kind of brings this message that like, at least for some folks, like there's something wrong with your brain. Yeah. Um, you know, you were just set up in this way and doesn't acknowledge the systemic factors that tipped over that diaphysis stress, mm -hmm. um, kind of combination. And so that genetic reductionism, I don't personally find super helpful. I also think that, um, it's pretty interesting to clinicians, but I don't think it's very interesting to most of our clients. That's very like, true, right? <laughs> I mean, I occasionally I'll have someone who's like super fascinated and wants to nerd out on it. But a lot of times folks are like, uh, okay, this is not relevant to like my day to day. You know, I'm yeah. not sitting there and being like, hmm, what is my hypothalamus doing right now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> And yeah. I find that clients already know, they already know they're kind of wired right. anxiously or perfectionistically mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So it's not like a big shock and yeah, we don't need to focus on like the brain structures. That's not what helps people recover. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's funny. Um, yeah. yeah. So when thinking about, um, you know, clients in the eating disorder recovery space, how can we help them? Um, heal from the effects of capitalism and eating disorder recovery? So this is something I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of years, but I'll talk a little bit later about the clinical work that I've implemented based around this. So I think that one of the key capitalistic values that we've talked about is like individualism. And I really think that in order to help our clients heal from, you know, the effects of internalized capitalism and eating disorder treatment, we have to move towards a place of collectivism. Um, and so I feel like kind of the, the micro community starts with like a treatment team, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have, you have folks around you, you have your dietitian, your psychiatrist, your physician, your therapist, you know, group support, whatever it might be. So you have this like micro community. And then I really think as clinicians, it's our responsibility to help clients connect to broader kind of community support resources. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what exists out there already and then what as clinicians we can create for clients um, kind of more broadly, but this can look like peer mentorship. This can look like group therapy, like um, you know, community education opportunities or, or meal connection opportunities. So I think that there are community um, experiences that can foster this sense of collectivism mm -hmm. and collectivism really counters that experience of isolation. That's so characteristic of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, so I really kind of see that as, as a primary responsibility that we have. Um, and I've seen transformation happen through community, you know, yeah. I've seen it really shift people's understanding. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think those community resources are important. Um, and then I also think the other kind of component that can be really helpful is um, bringing the intersectional identities into the space, mm -hmm. um, you know, helping clients really recognize, okay, these are the intersectional identities that I'm showing up 
in therapy with, and this is how they're experienced by others in the world. And I think what that can do is unlock a couple of things. I think it can help folks recognize the ways in which the deck might be stacked against them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can also help people unlock their power based on their identity and the communities they connect to. Yes. Um, so, you know, from like a kind of more abolition standpoint, it's like, we don't want to just focus on the ways in which folks are disadvantaged. We want to get excited and creative and imaginative about the ways in which folks' identities bring power um, and bring the potential for healing. So I think, you know, identifying those identity kind of components is crucial. And, And, you know, like I was saying at the start, I think the therapist really has to model that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the therapist, like I'm a very relational clinician. And so I'm going to bring my own identities in. Mm -hmm. Um, and that looks different for different folks. You know, everybody has sort of different levels of comfort and, um, receptivity to it, but I think I have to show up, you know, in a place of transparency in order to help my client do the same thing in the process of their healing. You know, I agree. I totally agree. And I'm the same way. Like I, always um seek to you know be authentic with my Mm -hmm. identities and who I am and my position in the world because I I don't think a blank slate therapist is what someone really needs (laughs) um just it's it's not even real it's not real and right Mm -mm. it doesn't it doesn't model to clients how we have healthy relationships outside of therapy right so absolutely I mean it, 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 like you said, it's not real. That's really not, isn't. you know, we are bringing our own life and world perspectives into the space. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, like we talked about before, like this aspect of humility is really important and trusting the client's wisdom and also saying my lived experiences might offer this perspective or mm-hmm. having engaged in this kind of community, here are the pieces of strength and, um, you know, resilience that I've, I've pulled from those experiences. So how does that fit for you? Yeah. Um, So that relational. Yeah. Yeah. Power dynamic. Like I don't ever like for, to feel, um, I mean, obviously there's an inherent power dynamic in the therapist client relationship, but as much as we can reduce that, I think it's so important because I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Like we're no, we're, I am no better than any of my clients. Like I'm just a human being and yeah. To hear that, wow, you're my therapist, this person I really look up to has their own struggles or has had their own struggles. It's so humanizing. Um, It's so humanizing, so valuable. And I just feel like I've been thinking a lot about alliance building between, you know, folks who are in recovery and mental health professionals and like how bringing those folks together and really collaboratively unlocking the power of experiencing recovery and working towards recovery, like that's a form of community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's somewhere that the eating disorder field has a lot of room to grow Absolutely, is in alliance building. Um, because we can have it happen on this micro level in the therapy room. And that's so powerful and contributes to, you know, very meaningful um, healing and progress. And like, we need to see that on a broader systemic level, true, like alliance building. How would you see that on a broader systemic level? Like what, what was, what's your ideas about that? Yeah. So I've been reading a lot of case studies because I am a nerd and I love <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> to, 
I love to read. And so um, I've been reading about some things that have happened in the UK where um, mental health workers and survivors have been kind of collaborating in um, improving treatment approaches. So this is kind of something that I think is really important because unfortunately folks who sometimes in outpatient, but oftentimes in higher levels of care experience treatment that isn't necessarily consistent with the way they want to recover or the way that they feel like they can best heal. Mm -hmm. And so having a collaboration between survivors and mental health workers to say, this is what's happening what might work better? Mm -hmm. Um, And there certainly are some eating disorder organizations that are are trying to move in that direction, but I think more like grassroots efforts um, in that regard. And so like, obviously it's just a tiny, tiny little sliver of the world, but on my Instagram, I'm really trying to elicit, you know, survivors, folks in recovery to talk about their experiences so that I can learn. And I also recognize that that's emotional labor on the parts of survivors and folks in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very mindful of like honoring and, and just respecting however much someone is willing or not willing to share because it can be triggering, triggering and activating. Mm-hmm. But I think when folks do have space for that kind of relational work, it really can improve outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. Agreed. Feedback yeah. informed treatment, like asking right. clients regularly, how is this going for you? You know, yeah. and not mm-hmm. just assuming that we know and we know best. Exactly. Um, exactly. And I feel like I try to do that in individual therapy too, in, in terms of just saying like, how does that fit for you? Yeah. How is that fitting? And then actually one of the things that I do at the close of a lot of sessions is say like, you know, what are you walking away with today? But then I also often just coming from a really relational standpoint, will say, how did it feel to be in our relationship today? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, what was it like to be in this space together? And sometimes the client will say it felt really healing. It felt really powerful. And other times they'll say like, I don't think it, I don't think it's really sitting with me well, or I feel a power dynamic. And then it's like, let's look at that. Let's Mm -hmm. really like slow down, pause, and take a look at why that relational experience is happening Mm -hmm. so that I can shift my behaviors or clarify something or understand something more about the client's, you know, um, lived experience. So I think it can, like alliance building can happen on so many levels. Agreed. No, I love that. You're, oh, you're just incredible. I love hearing you talk and I love talking with you. Thank you. We talk forever. <laughs> I know. I know. I think so too. I mean, all of this is so valuable and it's just like so exciting to me to connect with you that we're both doing this work, you know? Yes, I agree because sometimes talking to other, you know, eating disorder clinicians that don't have this focus, I feel like it's almost like taboo to bring some of this stuff up which mm-hmm. shouldn't be like, no, no, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but sadly it's just not the standardized gold standard treatment. So, right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this real reticence to acknowledge for a lot of clinicians that like the gold standard evidence-based treatment is based on white folks. Yes. You know, it's based 100%. on like oftentimes white, you know, cis women and girls, mm-hmm. um, and there's not attention or integration of other diverse identities. And so mm-hmm. it's like, are your best us- practices, right. really best and practices. They're usually not longitudinal either. They're usually for like no. a couple of years. So right. Yeah, right. There's so many issues with that. And yeah. I, am, I will openly say I am not a fan of CBT. <laughs> I, I don't use CBT. Um, 
if someone wants to restructure thoughts and yeah. that's a goal, then awesome. Let's, you know, use some of those strategies. However, I feel like if I bring CBT into the room and say like, okay, well, let's see if we can think about that in a different way. Or how could we feel different if we think about that differently? That's gaslighting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's gaslighting. That's saying like your experience of the world actually isn't accurate. So let's mm -hmm. change it. So it better fits my worldview. Right. Like, you know, it, I guess it has worked for folks who yeah. um, fall into a very kind of narrow category of the people who live in the world. But I also don't really use that because I don't feel like it's liberation oriented. Right. Basically. Yes. I mean, and it has a time and a place. Like there's definitely times where it comes yeah. up and in conjunction, I think with other theories and practices, yeah. but I mm -hmm. could never see myself use being like a solely CBT practitioner, especially mm -hmm. for eating disorders. For OCD, right. sometimes it is more, you know, ERP right. is more applicable, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just, we can't, anyway, like there's, I guess even with OCD though, there's not like every one theory that I'm using with clients. It's so individualized right. to their needs and their experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, where can listeners find you and learn about your amazing groups and Instagram? Thank you. Yeah. So um, what I've been doing in terms of community building and alliance building recently is doing these groups. And so um, my website that has information about that is um, jwhrevolution.com. Um, and I think that's really kind of indicative of the way that I view eating disorder recovery and treatment is it is a revolution. It is a process of liberation. So that's my website. And then my Instagram is at dr.jennieweh at drjennyweh. Um, and my Instagram is where I share a lot of my musings about capitalism and patriarchy and ableism and um, you know, all of these different components that go into the lived experiences of folks with mental health differences, um, you know, particularly with eating disorders. So that's my Instagram and my email address is jwhpsychotherapy at gmail.com. And so, you know, in the spirit of wanting to build community, I love having dialogue with folks, you know, having dialogue with people who are doing this work, who um, want to explore more. And so I welcome folks, you know, DMing me, emailing me, opening up these conversations. You know, it's so cool to connect with other clinicians, to connect with clients who want to do this work. Um, and then, you know, a couple of the groups that I've been doing that um, I talk about on my Instagram and my website, I'm doing revolutionary recovery. And so revolutionary recovery has been so rad. We are wrapping up the first um, kind of cohort and Basically, it's six weeks talking about um, five forces of societal oppression. And then the sixth week is folks defining their own utopia mm -hmm. and taking like all of the things they've uncovered about these forces and their own recovery and um, solidifying them into a way that they want to walk in the world, into a way that they want to empower themselves for their recovery. Um, and then the other group that I run that I think is, is helpful too is families in recovery. And so families in recovery is, again, a component of community building and really empowering families to show up in a meaningful way and understand all these intersectional components of eating disorders. So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing right now. Um, that's so and amazing. 
it's just, so, it's so exciting. I love doing this work. Um, like we were talking about, I want to do all the things all the time. Yes. So, yeah. I love it. I wish I had a revolutionary recovery when I was in recovery. Like that sounds so incredible. I'm so happy that you're doing that for people. Thank you. Yeah. It's been, it's been super cool. And I think people really are finding a lot of, um, healing and growth through it. So, mm -hmm. well, awesome. It was so great to connect with you, Jenny, and, um, we'll talk with you soon. I'm sure. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, Allison. Thank you.